You're listening to the awesome Podcast Network. <laughs> it's Halloween Movie Month here on 80s Revisited. <laughs> and now your hosts, Otto and Trey Harris. About the prime time, bitch! Sometimes, Dad is better. The Indians knew that. They stopped using that burial ground, and the ground went sour. Don't think about doing it, Lewis. The place gets holier, but the place is evil. Sometimes, Dad is better. Except when you're dead, you can't listen to podcasts because <laughs> your ears don't work because you're dead. Mm. Welcome, everybody, to the finale, the final chapter, if you will, of this year's Halloween horror, Hootenanny of Terror, and all those other fun ways I describe it. Yes. Mainly last year, not so much this year. <laughs> of course, I'm one of your hosts, Trey Harris, San's wife. She's kind of chilling in the pet cemetery right now. Mm-hmm. She'll be back any minute now. When she comes back. <laughs> Darling. And, of course, with me, as always, my old neighbor with so much knowledge that educates me about creepy burial grounds around here, Jesse Sedgley. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And of course, Pet Cemetery, spelled with an S and an extra A, April 21st, 1989. So, tail end of the decade that we call home in this podcast. IMDb, once again, strangely enough, 6.66. The mock number of the beast. Oh. Rotten Tomatoes, however. So metal. <laughs> This is the most metal movie ever. I only watch movies that have a 6.66 rating on IMDb. I just have to live. I always have to live the metal lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, however, not as favorable as last week's. Christine, 43% critics, 60% audience. So the audience mm-hmm. was kind of in line with uh, Christine from last week. Estimated 11.5 million dollar budget. Open for 12, so opening weekend made its money back. Uh, domestically, however, 57.4 worldwide, over 100 and 26, an additional 26.4 million dollars in rental revenue. So big hit, and we had a sequel that was completely unnecessary. Hmm. A few years later, uh, directed by Mary Lambert, uh, she also did Pet Cemetery too, but most notably for the decade that we again go home in the 80s, she all this probably would be better known for having directed Madonna's Like a Prayer video, which of course. Excuse me, if you've seen it, you have, uh, especially back when we were all younger, in the 80s, it was a very controversial video at the time, uh, due to the religious imagery and the interracial aspect of it and all that, because Madonna in the 80s was always pushing boundaries and breaking ground, so to speak, in pop culture, whereas today, she's completely irrelevant. So, now we have Lady Gaga and Miley Cyrus, so take that for what you will. Anyway... Let's see. Uh, writ- this one, the screenplay was actually written by Stephen King himself for this one. Mm. Uh, in fact, uh, after, of course, watching it, after reading the book, there were so many lines lifted directly from the, the novel, just verbatim. Uh, pretty, pretty much, a lot of, all of them have that, uh, pretty much, but uh, this one, a lot, uh, I remember distinctly hearing him again in the movie after having not seen the movie for years and having just read the book, like, oh, that's, exact, that's verbatim from the book, like, consistently. Uh, so he, of course, wrote the screenplay, wrote the novel, starring one good actor and a whole bunch of <laughs> and mad ones. Uh, Dale Midkiff uh, was Lewis Creed. He was uh, the main character in the USA series Time Tracks. He also starred oh, with Sandra man. Bullock in Love Potion Number no. 9. I'm a huge Dale Midkiff fan. 
Oh, you also might know, remember him from Airbud Three. Duh. And the most best recently, of the he went back into the horror genre with Flight of the Living Dead, a direct to DVD, actually really entertaining horror movie. Yeah, uh, it was okay. It was no Airbud Three, but yeah. <laughs> Sell them nothing is Jesse. <laughs> I know it's not even the same sport, but uh, also starring Denise Crosby uh, as Rachel. Of course, most people remember her as Lieutenant. I think Tasha Yar was her name in Star Trek: The Next Generation. Uh, yeah, it's one of those something like that. She was only on the Jenna. first Jenna Yar. Excuse. Oh, and that's Voyager Phase Two. Go down. Oh, a little she bit changed more. her name. I'm not sure because she died in The Next Generation, but then came back. If uh, I correctly. So you said Yar, Tasha Yar. I. Th- Think oh, that, online. Uh, yeah, that's Tasha, good enough. Yeah. Okay, always <laughs> correct. She must have played her sister in, in something. Yeah, Lieutenant Tasha Yar. Uh, yeah, I think she was just in the first alert. or second season of Next Gen. It's been so long since I've seen that. And, of course, she was only in it for a brief period of time that my most of my memories of Next Generation don't include her in it. Uh, mm. Let's see. what. Oh, she's also in 48 Hours. Uh, most recently, she was in Ray Donovan, which apparently is a really good show that uh, uh, is still too. around. Uh, Lee Schreiber's a great actor. I'm glad he mm-hmm. finally has like a vehicle that he's in that's you know actually staying around, unlike the Wolverine franchise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, she is Bing's granddaughter, and she didn't have anything really nice to say about her grandfather either. So, uh, whatever, take that for what you will. And star and honestly, the thing that most people will remember about this movie <laughs> is Fred Gwynn from this film as Judd Crandall, of course, Herman Munster himself, uh, also notable. Most people might remember him from My Cousin Vinny as the judge. Uh, he did pass away in 93, so he's obviously no longer with us and was not buried up in the hills in a pet cemetery because rats. he'd realized that dad is better. <laughs> I annoyed the piss out of Autumn. Like, after, <laughs> I was reading the book because I always remember that quote. Uh, of course, they say in the book, and then like it's October, so we've been watching horror movies. Anytime somebody says, they're dead, or whatever, like, Autumn, <laughs> remember, dad is better. <laughs> so I drove her crazy. She's like, I fucking know it's better. Like, Pissed her off saying it so much. But uh, that's because I haven't watching this movie for, again for the podcast. Of course, saw it when it came out, VHS. Hadn't seen it in years. But the thing that I always remembered was Fred Gwynn owned this movie. Even as a kid, I was like, he's so funny. I mean, it's just, he, was, he really had a, that character down. And uh, in fact, when I was reading the book, I saw different people for the other characters. But I, Fred Gwynn like, is that character when I was reading the book. Like, uh, in uh, reverse order, so to speak. Because usually, if I read a book, and I, you know, obviously before a movie, you know, I always put like actors in the role or who I'm seeing as that character. Like uh, Game of Thrones, when I read the first book, this was before the series, like I already had pictured uh, Sean Bean as Ned Stark. Oh, wow. And it was prophetic, not because he was cast in it, because he dies in the book. Because oh, I remember reading why. the book, and <laughs> when I, like, of course, this was after. I remember finishing the book. I'm like, it's so funny. I'm thinking to myself, it's so funny that I cast him in my mind, in the movie in my mind as I'm reading the book, because he dies in it, because he dies in every movie he's in, <laughs> practically, uh, and all that. So, But anyway, uh, also, rounding out the cast, after figuring out, uh, Brad Greenquist was Pascal. Uh, he, was, he does a lot of uh, bit part work. Uh, these days, he's still pretty much doing stuff recently. Or not so recently, he was in Ali, uh, Water for Elephants, and Lone Ranger. Sort of like as councilman number one, or, you know, little minor speaking roles that probably net him about 15000 a pop, uh, usually. I'm sure he has a screen, he's a card-carrying Screen Actors Guild uh, <laughs> actor. Uh, Blaze Berdahl was Ellie, Ellen, excuse me, in the, Ellie in the book, Ellen in the movie. Uh, she was also in We're Back, a dinosaur story, and she's actually a ghostwriter for a lot of... Uh, 
shows and stuff like that because she was really, really annoying in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miko Hughes uh, was Gage, which that's probably the other thing a lot of people remember. If you didn't remember mm-hmm. Fred Gwynn, you remember, no fair, no fair, let me play mommy. Uh, creepy Gage coming back after getting smeared by an 18-wheeler. But, uh, of course, you would probably remember him most notably as from Kindergarten Cop. And I will <laughs> instantly rejog your memory on who he was in Kindergarten Cop. Here we go. Boys have a penis. Girls have a vagina. (laughs) That's Gage. Uh, But also, and he was also Michelle Tanner's boyfriend or friend in Full House, and also uh, he was autistic, which was actually uh, for a kid actor really good. Actually, the one movie I have up right there, Mercury Rising, Mm -hmm. and also Apollo Thirteen. And finally, in our last Stephen King film, we have a cameo by the writer himself as the funeral director at uh, the chick who didn't die in the novel's funeral but died in the movie. Mm. So that rounds out the cast. Again, uh, now, of course, there is nostalgia in this one, like last week where I'd never seen Christine, but our, when this movie came out, it was a big deal. Like, dude, you seen Pet Cemetery? Kid gets hit by an 18-wheeler. It's messed up. Mm. Like, oh, just the shoe spinning. Like, I always remember, that's one of, the, like, yeah. one of the scenes I always remember from this one was just the shoe spinning. Uh, but, you know, watching it now, that's <laughs> haven't watched it in years, like I mentioned before, and it's just like, the movie's just, it's so silly now. It's just... <laughs> used to actually be scary. Like, it was. I mean, it really was. Like, when this movie came out, it was like, it was big. Like, people were ter- like, oh, it's the scariest movie I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, much like a lot of the other stuff we've covered all- this month with King's Works, the book is so much more creepier and scarier than the book movie. The movie leaves so much out, jumps around all over the place. Things just happen for, to explain something, and then just for the film, at least, to, tie, to give it the kick it needs to be in line with the story, so to speak, and then so many plot holes, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. Uh, it's, still, it's still a great movie to watch you know, in October because, I mean, it's got the gore. It's still creepy. Uh, and, of course, just for Fred Gwynn. It's just, <laughs> he's just so awesome in this movie. I can't stress that enough. Uh, in fact, uh, I was kind of shocked because I, I rem- as I was reading the book, the, in the book, that character is so much more endearing. And we'll get into a little more of that later on at the tail end of the podcast. But uh, I kept like projecting, having, or the book kept influencing my memories of the movie because I hadn't seen the movie in so long and read the book. I wanted to finish reading the book before I watched the movie again. But uh, <laughs> it's just, the movie, it, 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 as a kid, you're like, oh my God, this is, this is messed up. But as an adult, I'm like, this is so silly. This is so silly. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, the book is this kind of what you would think about it as. Uh, or the way you thought about this movie as a kid is how the book actually is for an adult. A uh, little teaser for what's to come. But anyway, mm-hmm. watching it again, it's still, uh, it still holds up in a sense. Uh, it's not, I mean, of course, it's all practical effects and all that kind of stuff, but there's really not that many effects. It's usually a lot of cheap camera tricks or dummies. Uh but uh, like I said, it, 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 this is a it's a great '80s hor- late '80s horror movie. Uh, you know, it's uh, this was kind of and honestly, this almost set the stage I think for a lot of the King adaptations that came later on after this, like the direct the TV one, such as it, the stand, uh, Tommyknockers. This one almost, aside from the gore, really seems like a uh, almost like it could have been a TV movie, mainly from the quality of the acting. <laughs> well, especially if you're watching it today. I mean, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> But uh, it just, the product, like uh, Mary <laughs> Lambert, no obviously actors. she hasn't directed a lot of, uh, you know, didn't really do much. This and Madonna's Like of Her Videos are main things. Like, uh, in fact, uh, kind of jumping ahead, but 
when you when you would think like who would who could really do this story justice? Uh, Guillermo del Toro has long wanted to be the one to be able to redo this movie, mm. but never been able to get it off the ground. Which I would totally be for that because uh, Crimson Peak was pretty badass. Mm. Much like I'm, I'm a I'm a fan, total fanboy for del Toro. Like he's I think he's one of the best visual. He's what Ridley Scott used to be in terms of like visuals and atmosphere and stuff like that. Although I haven't seen The Martian and I heard it's kind of a return to form for Ridley Scott. I want to so. see that, yeah. Well, see, so he can science the shit out of it, bro. <laughs> I mean, can we stop, like, marooning, having to rescue Matt Damon? I know. He's like, always getting, needing rescue. I didn't even think about that and there was some meme, like, with the poster of The Martian saying, like, stop, you yeah, know, stop. sending Matt Damon places where we have to go rescue him. Yep. Like, Saving <laughs> so Private Ryan. didn't even think about it and like, ah, oh, it makes so much sense. Saving uh, Matt Damon. And Interstellar, basically, and then... Yeah. Yeah. Which the Martian seemed like a pretty good well hunting. We had to save him from himself and <laughs> yeah. life, so to speak. You know. So, but anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah. But if you haven't seen this movie again in a while, like I did, it's definitely worth revisiting. It's a good revisit. It still has that nostalgic feel. Like, but if you haven't seen it in a while, you're probably gonna be like, wait, I, I remember this differently because there's so many things I remembered, like a little bit different. Like I remembered, like you know, when the truck hit him, it was. Uh, as a kid, like I remember, like like actually hitting him or something. Like I had a false memory of that. No, nope, doesn't actually. You know, it's all camera tricks and reverse yeah. photography and all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, but uh, actually, I, I'd be remiss. the The part of this movie that was truly terrifying to me as a kid wasn't anything that came out of the pet cemetery, but it was all the flashback scenes with her sister in the bedroom where she's like. Actually, it's a dude playing her, mm. but uh, with that creepy, Mike, it almost looks like Michael Jackson was before he died with a stretched face. Oh, wow. Like, that, that's the part that always, as a kid, there were, it's the scene near the end where, uh, what's her name? Uh, Rachel goes after Judd's been killed in, the, in, the, uh, in his house, and she's upstairs, and she sees her sister in Gage's little outfit. That's the part that, as a kid, like, I would look away like, I don't want to see that. That's way too creepy. And as a matter of fact, there's an awesome in-joke uh, in the film, uh, the scene we just watched, uh, where oh, they no. bring Pascal in. When they're carrying him into the office on the sheet, they go past a bulletin board. And on the bulletin board, if you look, if you pause it or look closely, in fact, I took a screenshot of it on my computer, and I'll post mm. it on the Facebook page. Uh, there's a sign on the wall that says, rabies, question mark, and it's a picture of Cujo. <laughs> Which is awesome, but what's even more awesome is that in the book, because again, we talk about how King has that shared universe, uh, when Judd's first telling Lewis about the pet cemetery, he talks about it's not like that incident up, you know, up the uh, a few miles up the road with that rabid dog that killed a few people. Where he re- mm. they referenced Cujo, Cujo and pet cemetery. So I was like reading, I was like, oh, I like Captain America, and the first Avengers, like, oh, I get that reference. <laughs> yeah, so I understood it. But uh, yeah, I definitely like the 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 older sister flashback parts as a kid. That's the part that scared me in this film. And now when I watch it, I'm just laughing like, oh, that's so. <laughs> That's so bad looking. I mean, it's still creepy. You know, I, I could definitely see how people, some, cause, you know, some people are still creeped out by Chucky. But uh, mm-hmm. I can see how it's still creepy to some people. But as a kid, it terrified me. Didn't care about Pascal with his brain hanging out or a little, you know, gauge. That didn't scare me at all. But her flipping sister was creepy. Uh, but anyway, uh, I'm sure you've seen this movie, huh, Jesse? Plenty of times. Really? Like, I mean, yeah, when I was growing up, this is one of the VHSs that, oh, that you <laughs> we had? happened to have. <laughs> You know, because we had a small collection of tapes we recorded from Alfalfa Video. Yeah, as you mentioned so, <laughs> And this was one of them. So, yeah, this got watched a lot and really numbed me to horror movies, I think. 
you know, because back then I think we were a softer nation. Yes. Because um, I mean, Chucky saw it coming. He was scary at one time. Now it's, he makes comedies basically. Because yeah. he realized, okay, people are used to this now. Mm-hmm. Now we got to do something more. Yeah. But I'm still doll and I still got to make my money. <laughs> so <laughs> comedy horror it is. Exactly. That works. <laughs> but this definitely falls down. Yeah. Something I've watched plenty of times. It's been a long time, but I did watch it a lot. I mean, I would recommend if you haven't seen it in a while, like definitely was one, especially again, it's in October. Mm-hmm. It's always cool to watch a horror movie. Uh, but that little girl is so bad. Like the <laughs> acting is just so, again, except Fred Gwynn. He's so awesome in this film. But it's just, I'm not saying these are bad actors, but they just don't, it's like a, this movie, it's acted like a soap opera. Mm-hmm. Like very like, and almost shot like it too. Like, like we just saw the scene with Denise Crosby in the kitchen. Like it's so like, oh, I'm listening into the conversation. And yeah. <laughs> that, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's not like last week. It's not like Christine to where very well directed, and very well directed John Carpenter, uh, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but, uh, now, uh, as a kid before, and obviously before reading the book, I always wondered like, why is it spelled S E M A? This is why I'm here. T A R Y. So the mystery shall now be revealed. I will peel back the curtain. Uh, but the idea of the story came when uh, Stephen King's daughter's cat was actually killed. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me go back a little bit, actually. Uh, the genesis for the entire story came because, much like in the book, or in the movie, Stephen King moved to a, like a rural main town. He was doing a year like a, at his old alma mater, he, as a, like a favor to him or something. He came and did like a year in residence as a teacher there. Uh, and he lived in a house kind of out in the country away from the university that had a, ro- a dangerous road just like this, and it also had a pet cemetery, like in a trail down from the house where local people buried their pets. And the pet cemetery, that w- the actual real-life pet cemetery that was the basis for this novel, had a sign on it, just like you see in the movie, that said pet cemetery, but it was spelled like that because a kid did it, didn't know how to spell it. Mm. So that's the spelling comes from that... That's well. That's where it comes from, yeah. and also the story because Stephen King's daughter's cat got hit by a car. Uh, on the raw, they lived there, uh, and they buried it in the pet cemetery. Or I don't know if they actually buried it in the pet that pet cemetery or not. But in the opening credits, the name of the cat was Smucky. It appears on one of the tombstones in the beginning of the movie, as a reference to his cat. But actually, the scene in the book, or uh, the part in the book and the scene in the movie where the cat died, or. Uh, where the girl, the daughter screams about, like, church is my cat, not God's cat. He can get his own cat. That's uh, actually Stephen King verbatim what his daughter said when their cat died and how she freaked out about it. And that there's him wrestling with the dummy. It looks so stupid. It's terrible. It's like, okay, now, okay, now, there, uh, when Bruce Campbell in Evil Dead 2 is wrestling with his hand, uh-huh. you know, yeah. like, what a, what's some, that's some great acting. Mm-hmm. Like, you believe his hand, like, he's acting, like, his hand is actually trying to kill him. And uh, speaking of Bruce Campbell, he was the original first choice for the role of Lewis Creed. How awesome would this movie have been had Bruce Campbell been the dad? How amazing would that have been? But alas, he didn't. We got uh, the guy from Time Tracks. So <laughs> I don't know why they didn't go with Bruce Campbell, but how amazing would that be? I can't get over that. Like that's again, we talk about like the alternate realities because you know times. Uh, timeline split off and there's millions of timelines and et cetera, et cetera. There's, has, there's a timeline out there where Bruce Campbell got this role and is still a huge actor that's not relying on, you know, Ash vs. Evil Dead or little bit roles and other things. He's actually that grade A Tom Cruise level actor. That would have happened had he played in this movie. His star would have risen even higher than it could have risen today. But anyway, the road not taken. 
But anyway, uh, a ton of this, in addition to everything I just said about uh, Stephen King and this novel, like the fact that real life aspects where he got the inspiration, another real life thing was his kid almost got hit by an 18 wheeler where his kid was run to the road. Obviously King Greg saved his kid, you know, stopped him before right. he got too close to the road, but he never forgot how terrified he was in that moment as if that happened. And thus in the book, that's where all that comes from. The, you know, where he can't, you know, and the macabre comes in with the fact that, uh, you know, the, the things come back from the pet cemetery, the Indian burial ground as referenced in the, uh, movie more so than the book. Uh, so, there's a lot of, almost a lot of this is pulled from his real life with the exception of things coming back from the dead and killing people. Hmm. So a lot of real reality in it. Uh, as I mentioned before, the role of Zelda was played by a dude. Uh, Mary Lambert wanted her to look even a little more creepier and off, something off about her uh, in the scene. So he cast a dude in you know, heavily, heavy prosthetics. Excuse me. I mentioned Bruce Campbell. Uh, in an interview with actor Brad Greenquist, who played Pascal, uh, or excuse me, Pascal, uh, as uh, what's her, uh, the daughter says in the book in the movie, uh, he had to keep his makeup on with ate lunch, and nobody would sit by him. So the poor guy with his brain <laughs> hanging out had to eat alone. Such a sad story. And <laughs> strangely enough, uh, the film was actually shot near the same area in Maine where uh, King set the novel, but also where he lived, and the novel was inspired and written. So uh, it's actually filmed mm. in that same kind of area of Maine. Uh, also, funny enough, uh, Fred Gwynn actually had to dye his hair white for this role. He mm. wasn't gray at this time. Uh, let's see. So could you see the driver whenever the, the 18-wheeler hit the kid? I believe so. Oh, okay. Just checking. You know, because... Because they, they have a scene where he's, like, singing oh, in the truck, okay. and then it... So it wasn't a crossover from Maximum Overdrive. Oh, yeah, it wasn't Maximum Overdrive. Because <laughs> they should have. That could have worked. <laughs> but in the book, they say how uh, the guy that runs over Gage in the book, the driver... Uh, like, he tries to commit suicide, and his wife leaves him. He loses his job. Uh, and to his story. Yeah. I mean, just they just mention it, what they heard. And it turns out the truck was driving itself. <laughs> I hit the brake, I swear. Or it's like Christine, where he was asleep. He was out of town. Like, yeah. his truck kills people when he's not there. So it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's actually both. Like, Christine had se- got had sex with another truck, and that's when he started trucks. <laughs> yeah. Had so many kids. Uh, uh, yes. That could just get really weird. That video is somewhere. <laughs> It's the cover of the Aerosmith album Pump with all the trucks fucking <laughs> yeah. each other. Uh, let's see, the original... Oh, Maximum uh, crossover. And we'll talk about this a little bit more in the book. I mean, uh, when we talk about the main difference between the book. But uh, the original screenplay featured the Wendigo, uh, which is basically that's what is causing this supernatural activity in the book, uh, not just Indian burial ground. Mm. Uh, in the book, it, in the movie, it's only implied twice. First is the scene when Lewis is walking through the woods and he hears a large like footstep almost, and then a large tree just falls down. Well, at that, at that exact point in the book, he actually sees the Wendigo, and it's like a gigantic creature in the woods. So it's hmm. obviously not in the book, but that everything happens like that in the movie, except he just doesn't see it. And then also, they mention the Wendigo one more time when they're first taking uh, church up there, and Judd's like, they hear the weird noises, and Judd's like, oh, it's just a loon. Uh, but again, big difference from the book. Uh, seven different blue British short-haired cats were required to play church, <laughs> and each of them were trained to do a specific action for the camera because cats are assholes, right. and they'd only learn one trick and not another one, so they had to get seven different cats that looked like that could each do a unique trick. They're lucky they got one. For real. Uh, let's see. Uh, this was the first film screenplay that Stephen King adapted from one of his own novels. 
he re- his some of his requirements were that the movie be filmed in Maine and his screenplay be re- uh, followed rigorously. Hmm. So, uh, which is probably why a lot. Also, like I mentioned before, a lot of I could a lot of lines directly from the book are in the movie, as as they are in the book, because uh, I mean he's pulling right from it. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, during the film, uh, Fred Gwynn mentions that he had a pet named Spot. Spot was also the name of the family pet on the show The Monsters that he starred in. So, but although in the book, I believe the dog was also named Spot. So it's just a coincidence. It's not like an in joke or anything. I know. Not many dogs are named Spot. Wait, yes, they are. <laughs> like every <laughs> other dog. <laughs> Is your dog a Dalmatian? What's his name? Spot. Spot. Uh, let's see. Uh, this was pretty. This would have been a lot different. Uh, George A. Romero was originally set to direct. Uh, but he had to drop out when filming got delayed, and then Mary Lambert stepped in. So uh, I think a lot of problem. Like I think this film would be a lot better with simply just a, a more skilled director of the genre. Uh, I mean, Mary Lambert did this one in part two and a music video. But I mean, you know, you had to get a George A. Romero in there, or like last week a John Carpenter that can make a huge difference, uh, especially for a horror film, especially one that's really, I mean, honestly, as fucked up as this movie is. Uh, so, but uh, the Micmac burial ground in the film was actually constructed on an actual mountaintop, and according to Mary Lambert, uh, they had to bring in bulldozers to actually flatten part of the mountain, and then build the stone uh, carns and everything they uh, have for the uh, set and everything. Uh, I mentioned the picture of Cujo on the wall, which is you know reference to the movie, but also the book uh, as they mention it. Uh, this, and uh, as we talked about with Christine last week, how Stephen King got hit by a truck, a hmm. uh, van actually. Right. This storyline also revolves around a child or the danger of being hit by a car on the road, which mm-hmm. eventually happened to King himself. So, uh, and it actually happened on a minivan in 1999 as he was walking on the shoulder of Route 5 in Lovell, Maine. He <laughs> just has bad luck with cars. <laughs> just like, well, I mean, it's probably because he wrote a book about a, a car that kills people, yeah. a short story about trucks that kill people, and <laughs> then, uh, you know, arguably his. Uh, you know, probably one of his most famous novels uh, that centers on a road uh, where things die all the time. So he had it coming. <laughs> yep. But thankfully he survived. You write about what you know. <laughs> <laughs> but see, why, why isn't that one of his books? How yeah. <laughs> I always knew it was coming and then it happened. I saw it. I tried to tell you all. <laughs> See the magic rim, of rim, story. No, he would talk. Rim, rim, Referencing last week, if you didn't listen to it. Yes. Uh, but uh, as I mentioned, <laughs> Del Toro announced that he would try. He's always wanted to kind of direct a remake. Uh, in 2010, it was announced that a remake was in the works. Uh, and then in uh, in March of 2010, but then in September of 2010 is when Del Toro announced that he would like to direct it. Uh, but it, of course, obviously nothing. His busy schedule made it unlikely, but to work on it anytime soon. Uh, so uh, body count: there's four. Four people die and one cat. Or if you want to count the times people die after they're resurrected in the pet cemetery, mm, yeah. there's six and two. Or nope. six people and two cats. Because church dies twice. Yeah. So uh, that runs it up. Uh, runs it up. Or uh, also at six, if you conclude that Lewis dies. Mm. Which is pretty. I think it's pretty safe. No, no. They kept dancing. I think he blocks the knife and then like, <laughs> yeah. you know, knocks like his wife's head off and then he just goes insane. <laughs> nah, like, I mean, it's pretty safe to say that he's, he's dead. <laughs> Uh, but nobody's gonna bury him. Uh, movie-wise, score. Uh, as a kid, I probably would have given it. You know, oh, it's, this movie's awesome. You know, it was always like. In fact, I remember being excited when the sequel came out, and then seeing the sequel, being like, "This is stupid." Yeah. But uh, obviously, uh, as a kid, I would have given it higher. But it's still a seven. It's still a, it's still one. I could watch it every year and around Halloween. It still has that good atmosphere. And again, Fred Gwynn steals the show. Like that character. Mm-hmm. It's just awesome. 
uh, in the real world. Again, the movie released on April 21st, 1989. On the same day is the day uh, in Tiananmen Square where students began their protest, which, of course, anybody in our age group hmm. remembers that famous picture of the lone guy standing in front of all the tanks yeah. as they're coming before they ran over a whole bunch of people and killed a lot of people, they all uh, came mainly back. students. <laughs> they were all buried in an ancient <laughs> Chinese burial ground. Oh, uh, that road there? Oh, <laughs> oh that road. Tenement Square Road. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> in fact, uh, when I posted, because on October, I like to always post what movies I'm watching so I can kind of go back and keep track of which ones I yeah. watched last year and add some new stuff in. In fact, our, my friend Perry posted that picture from South Park. Yeah. I, I, was, I laugh like because every time he'd come on, I always I, that's in the back of my like, oh, yeah. you don't want to go back up there, that <laughs> road up there. Don't do it, Lewis. <laughs> Such a just genius. But uh, anyway, uh, the book. Let's talk about the book now specifically. The book was released November fourth, nineteen eighty three, same year as Christine. Uh, it was uh, also one of the, it was a book that King actually kind of shelved for a while because like he thought it was too personal with like the. So, so much similarities to his own life that, and he just didn't think anybody would like it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he released it, and it became one of his biggest hits. And he was right. No. <laughs> <laughs> now nobody buys his books. Uh, the book is uh, delves much more into the psychological aspect. As I mentioned last week, uh, a lot of Stephen King's books are kind of slow burns. They're establishing the the place, the uh, you know, a little air mystery, the characters. He really builds the relationships, especially in the book. The relationship between Judd and Lewis is like kind of like Dennis and Arnie from uh, Christine. It's so well established. It's so well gone over to where, uh, like in the book, I mean the movie, excuse me, they just like mention things. Oh, I did this to you, Lewis. It was my fault. Like he explains all that. It's all like laid out in the book why he feels that way because of the pull of the the Wendigo in the Pet cemetery and all that. Like the evil that's just in the air. It gets to you, Lewis. Like they explain everything so much better. It's not just kind of alluded to or just basically just blurted out with exposition as it is in the movie. Uh, also, we're actually watching right when they first move into the house. That's uh, the chick that hangs herself in the film. Mm. That's uh, in the book. That character is in the book, but she doesn't kill herself. That's because in the book, Judd has a wife who dies of natural causes over the course of the book. And that's the funeral that they go to in the book. Uh, but they just completely... Well, basically, they, didn't, they left out the wife, but they kind of combined aspects of her character i.e. that she dies and they have to go to a funeral in the movie into the character of the uh, neighbor who watches the kids, the, kind of the nanny-esque character, so to speak. So they totally leave her out, which was kind of sad because in the book, again, they they really establish, or King really establishes how how good of a man Judd is. Like he does, like he's a good guy. He likes, you know, he helps helps Lewis out, all this stuff, and again, builds their relationship. And we're watching him carry Pascal in, and this next shot where it shows him go past, there it is, rabies. And there's Cujo. <laughs> uh, so check it out if you have the movie, if you haven't noticed that before. Yeah, anyone who makes movies does that. <laughs> yep. That's, I've done it. Everybody should, every filmmaker, like, I love that in a movie. Like, you know, R2-D2 and C-3PO were hieroglyphics on Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, <laughs> little things that you have to, like, really pay attention to or hear uh-huh. elsewhere and then go check it out. Like, oh, the one, the subtle, and again, subtle ones. Yeah. Not, hey, do you see this dog with rabies? You know, blatantly, it's on the front page or something. He puts down the newspaper and answers another character off screen or something. You know, I put Red X and uh, Requiem's. These are local references, people. Yeah, but you can find them on YouTube. But yeah, he films. Yeah, he is in there for a short second. Rightfully so. (laughs) Rightfully so. Uh, I mentioned as a wife. Uh, Also in the book, which is way creepier, uh, Gage straight up goes exorcist style. Excuse me, by that I mean he talks in the voices of the dead. Mm-hmm. Like as and like he talks like Zelda, he talks like Judd's wife, sort of like uh, 
<laughs> the best reference when I'm reading it that I was thinking of was Evil Dead 2, where he puts the head on the vice, and it starts talking like, she burns in hell. And he's, right, when he gets the chainsaw and cuts the head open. Uh, stuff like that, where Gage is like saying that to Judd, like, your wife's in hell and she cheated on you and all this stuff. Like, really kind of fucked up stuff <laughs> that he's like saying. Like, he's not just going, let's play, let's play. Like, it's not, he's not saying that. He's saying way worse stuff than that to these characters <laughs> in the book. Uh, I mentioned the Kubo, Kujo reference. And honestly, one of the biggest things in the movie that is not in the book, uh, basically, in the book, not everything that gets buried up there comes back bad. Hmm. Uh, Church isn't, like, hissing at everybody. It's just, he's different. He, like, walks a little different. He leaves, like, you know how cats will, like, kill a mouse and leave it for the yeah. owner to find? Like, he does that, but he does it, like, a lot. Like, birds, rats, and he leaves them. Not like in the movie where he throws one and the cat throws a dead rat in the tub while Lewis is taking a bath. He does that in the book, but he doesn't. He leaves them like a cat would, and he's they always anything that's buried there always still smells like Lewis. He constantly says how Church just smells like death and all that. And then Judd tells stories about his dog Spot came back, and you know Spot wasn't rabid or anything or like you know, attacking people. Uh, he just told a story of how uh, there was a bull, strangely enough, a, jo- a bull, a prize bull that a guy buried, and when he buried it in the book, it got mean. You know, it'd, it'd run at people, got in the yard and all that kind of stuff. So he eventually had to kill it again. And then, uh, but they do talk about, like they reference in the movie, the Timmy Baderman or something like that character where like they go and the house sets on fire. How, because uh, Judd says, you know, he does freak out like in the movie, like you don't bury a person up there, never bury a person up there, don't even mention it. Because the only time he saw that was that character, that kid, but he came back wrong. But in the movie, apparently you come back as a zombie because you start eating legs and burying them in the yard or Gage bites Judd's neck and like eats eats his flesh. Like in the book, they don't come back as cannibals. They just they just come back basically evil, uh, for the most part. Uh, which when I was watching, I didn't remember that at all. Like the the flashback story where he's like eating a leg and like burying it in the yard, and they remember Gage. Uh, the part I always remember was when he slices his mouth. Mm-hmm. But now I always think about the Joker. Like I, in fact, we're watching. <laughs> I'm like I lean over the audience. That's exactly what I said. I said, "How did he think? How do you think I got these scars, Louis?" <laughs> We remember uh, that part in this pit. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that, and then my dad cut yeah. my mouth. <laughs> it was badass. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so there's the again, like with a lot of the movies that we've done this month, the the movies will hit like kind of the same beats as the novel, but there's a lot of details that are different for the most part. Uh, let's see. I mentioned the actual references. Uh, what else? Oh yeah, uh, the again the. Uh, one of the biggest things... Oh, also, like he only sees Pascal that one time where he walks into the graveyard in the cemetery. Never sees him again. Never even mentioned. It's not like he's out there like warning Rachel and all that. In the book, it's more like the cemetery's pulling these pieces together because it. You know, they kind of allude to it that the Wendigo feeds on the grief and the sadness and all that. In the book is what they kind of do. Hmm. So it's a lot... It's a lot more psychological and like... It's a lot more creepier in the book. The book obviously... If you can't tell, it's just a lot better than the movie. Uh, again, the movie's almost like a Cliff Notes version of the story itself, but there's a lot of really interesting details that are in the book that obviously aren't in the movie. Uh, score-wise, just like last week, I really enjoyed this book. Uh, it added a, so much more like backstory that reading the book, you know now when you watch the movie, and you kind of see what they were trying to do with like lines of exposition and that kind of stuff. But I'd, I'd give the book a 9. It's definitely... You know, probably tied with Christine for my second favorite King book. Uh, again, so I read The Shining. 
I'll probably get to that one soon because that's one I really want to read because I've heard that one in the stand cons- uh, most often referred to as his, you know, one or the other is on the, t- the number one of his best book list. Uh, so I'm looking forward to trying that out. But yeah, definitely, uh, if you like the movie and you haven't seen it in a while, watch it again, see what you think. But if you'd like to get the real story, the book's only like, I think, 560 pages. And it sounds like a lot, but it's really not. Uh, the chapters are kind of short. Uh, and it's kind of, it's not one of those, it's not a Game of Thrones novel to where like the, you know, the print is tiny on the page, like a Bible. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's, it's a bit bigger. It's not, uh, I mean, I put down like 50 pages in like 30 minutes. Just hmm. reading, just reading at a normal, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not a fast reader or, you know, I read and, you know, I might reread something to get the details or whatever, but it's not like, it's not a hard read. Yeah. Because uh, Autumn, when she wanted to read Game of Thrones, she read the first book and didn't want to read any of the other ones because it's a hard <laughs> read. And it really is. I mean, it's like it's dense with locate. It's like it's like Lord of the Rings. It's like I don't ever need to read those books again. I read them each one before the movie, and like I really shouldn't have done that because the movies are a lot better than the books in that case. <laughs> uh, sorry to offend any Tolkien fans out there, Stephen Colbert, if you're listening, I apologize. Uh, but anyway, so that does it. This year's Halloween horror is now ready for burial and. Our own little Indian burial ground. Yeah, in two days it's Halloween. Yeah, <laughs> it's Halloween Eve, Eve. So again, everybody, hope you enjoyed this f- lovely time of the year where you know the darker side, the funner side of life, could be explored and enjoyed with such wonderful offerings, such as Pet Cemetery and the other movies we talked about. And of course, you know what? I hope I should have mentioned this at the first episode because you know we're only, we do you know we do one episode a week for Halloween. But this is our fourth year to do it, so that means now there's about 20 episodes or so of Halloween movies that we've done, so you can go back and listen to those. You know, you're like, ah, they're done with Halloween, damn it. But guess what? There's like, uh, if you forgot the other movies we covered, go back and listen to those, because honestly, I was listening to some of the last year's. I think last year's was the best. (laughs) Those episodes were really good. I I was like, ah, damn, like, these episodes this year just don't have the same punch. I don't know. Something's missing. I guess it's Daniel. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But anyway. Last yeah. year we had Daniel? Well, the intro did. Oh. Uh, I mean, but during the show? I don't know. I only listened to the last two because it was Elvira. Because I, I thought we ended last year's with like... Uh, but he was around? I think so. God, it seems he was like, like forever. Yeah. Daniel who? Daniel who? Listen to the early episode. You'll know who we're talking about. <laughs> most, you know, some people don't know who that is. But anyway, everybody. Again, thanks for listening. Send us your thoughts on the on any of the books or movies we've covered, 80srevisited at gmail.com, or leave it in a review on iTunes, good or bad, I don't care. We just want to hear feedback. We like constructive criticism. Don't send a one-line email that just says, you suck. Tell us why we send suck. Send those to me. And, no, I'm kidding. Don't. <laughs> Tell us why. We're not perfect. We're just two guys that you know are having fun doing podcasts because we like to sound, I like to sound my own voice, and Jesse indulges me. It's, it's, my, it's, it's my, true. It's my only vice in life. <laughs> it's the one thing I truly like. But anyway, uh, AsiaVisitGmail.com, uh, on Facebook, uh, Twitter, and the internet, uh, AwesomePods.com, or at AwesomePods, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, Awesome Podcast Network means there are other shows on there. All your favorite old episodes of Geekly Dose, Duo Attack, Jesse's own podcast, where he interviews random people you'll never meet. But you might find it interesting nonetheless to hear other people's stories about stuff. Sure. Uh, also, if you're on a trip, check out Why Don't You Know This uh, trivia podcast, which was always really fun, Jesse, just to say. <laughs> Well, they were a lot of work. Yeah, I can, ima- <laughs> I can imagine. 
Um, also, uh, if you're a yeah. fan of Legend of Core, you can check out all the Tim Bridgewater's Reflexity Report episodes on that show. And as always, it would be remiss of me not to mention our good friends in Lafayette, John and James, at Now vs. Nostalgia, to check out their podcast for anything and everything that goes during our decade that we cover here, but also stuff before and after, so you can catch some other stuff on there. And uh, next week, everybody, uh, I know no more horror movies for a while. we got to let it go, because now Christmas is upon us. Mm. So, But anyway, next week we're going to be talking about an often-mentioned movie on the podcast that we haven't done yet, but strangely enough has been coming up randomly in conversations or seen blips of it on TV, hmm. when I'm at other people's houses. It's going to be the Dennis Quaid, Martin Short classic, Inner Space. Uh, One of my personal favorites as a youngin. I remember seeing it in the theater, as a matter of fact. And speaking of creepy scenes, there was a, creep, a scene in that movie that always creeped me out, too. But we'll talk about that next week. But until then, everybody, I remain Trey Harris. Jesse Sedgley. Stay safe on Halloween. Don't need razor blade apples. Cowabunga. Eat them. <laughs> my turn. This show and more on Facebook.com slash AwesomePods. And follow us on Twitter at AwesomePods. 